Hello, listeners. Glad to meet with you again. We will now begin Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. I hope to believe that all of our listeners lived this past week chasing after our resurrected Jesus Christ. In today's society, we use tests or examination in our education system to measure the capabilities of students. The purpose of the test is to use it as a tool to measure the capabilities of students, and not for a pass or fail purpose. But in our education system today, it's as if these tests only exist for our children to pass them. It seems like all systems are created for this sole purpose. We know very well what people speak of the Bible. What God speaks of the Bible, and we also know through the four Gospels what Jesus tells us as well. Sometimes, when we have Bible quizzes at church, it is very surprising at the amount of knowledge people have about the Bible, and not speaking about a specific person. Even myself personally have come to a point where I can answer many of those quiz questions. But even to myself, I ask, is my faith growing in comparison to the amount of knowledge that I am gaining? The reason we read the Bible is certainly not to receive the first place award at a Bible quiz. The purpose is to know about God who created us, saved us, and gave us an eternal life, isn't it? Of the seven churches, there was a church who was complimented by Jesus for not just knowing the word, but living by the word. And that church was the Church of Philadelphia. Here are the words of Revelation chapter three, verse seven and eight. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The Philadelphia church was complimented for having little strength. But still keeping the word and not denying the name of Jesus. The strength that is being mentioned is not a spiritual strength, but the social strength this church held. This church had very little social strength, not anything outstanding, but still kept the word of Jesus. This is a very important passage. Holding a Christian religion doesn't have too great of a significance in the Western society, and furthermore, is not too hard living as a superficial Christian. When many megachurches today are voicing their opinions here and there, holding somewhat of an influence on society. However, if believing in Christ was limited to the minority, and if Christianity was an exclusive to a neglected class of people, keeping the word within Christ and living without having to deny it, it wouldn't be as easy. Even just a few years ago, many churches under the Japanese imperialism bowed down and worshipped the Japanese emperor. I am not blaming our ancestors, but I am trying to say that it is much harder to keep the word of Christ and admit to it. If I was faced in such a situation, I don't think I would know how I would react unless I actually faced it. Had very little strength, but kept the word of Jesus and did not deny the name of it. Oh, 
When speaking to people about why they believe in Christ, oftentimes I get the answer that they believe to go to heaven. To be a little bit more specific, it could also be because they don't want to go to hell. In a sense, it seems right, going to heaven in ways of preventing themselves from going to hell, but let's think here. 
Could this also mean that if there was another way available for people not to go to hell, perhaps people would select that method instead? In reality, there are many other religions that claim there are other methods in ways other than Jesus' judgment. They claim that they themselves are a god, that they are their own individual of this universe, and deceive others into thinking that there is something else other than the judgment explained in the Bible. In the end, those people do not want to accept God's words and also do not want to go to hell. So they seek to find other answers. For the people who are influenced by others and claim they believe in Christ just to prevent from going to hell may need to re-examine their own faith. Do you remember how I spoke about tests and examinations at the start of the broadcast? I said that the purpose of tests is to be used as a tool to measure the capabilities of someone rather than trying to find out how well one can pass or feel it. When God gives us His Word, only when we keep it and live by it will the power of it be revealed to us. There is no purpose of only knowing His Word in our heads and thoughts and living and having nothing to do with it. God does not throw us a task and ask us to fill in the answers. It says this in Judges chapter 2, verse 22. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. What God looks for is how well we listen to His word and act and live according to it. When asked, how are you, we automatically respond regardless of our emotions by saying, I'm fine, thank you, how about yourself? But when asked who is Jesus, there are many of us today that respond back to this question mindlessly without any thought that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God without knowing who Christ really is and living without a purpose. This is how many people are today. It says in the scriptures of Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation. You are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We Let the sea 
coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is, What is the Significance of 666? Part 1, based on Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 through 18. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Well, you guys, today we're in a very, very interesting chapter, maybe one of the most intriguing chapters of the Bible, Revelation 13. I say intriguing because uh, people who don't even like the Bible or like God, they are interested in this chapter, Revelation 13, where where it talks about the one world government, one world currency, you know, the one world religion, basically the last days and what the world system is going to look like. This is the passage where, uh, you know, people who have heard of uh, 666, that number, you know, that, that appears in, in verse 18, and try to figure out the mystery of that. Because the Bible says, according to that number, you'll be able to figure out who this world ruler is going to be in the end days. And I don't know what you've heard during your lifetime, but I've heard different predictions. You know, I, a while back it was real popular. People thought it was going to be Rockefeller, because if you take his name... And if you A equals 6, and then B equals 12, and C equals 18, and you add all the letters of his name together, it equals 666. Um, I've gotten some emails lately, actually last year, where they used Bill Gates' name and worked it out. And it was like, wow, you know, and then they start talking about Microsoft and how the whole world has it. And, you know, you start questioning different things. And uh, here's why this chapter is so significant. Okay, it teaches that in the end times... The whole world is going to fall for this false religion, okay? For a false religion that everyone's going to fall into. But the thing is, is Revelation 13 lays it all out and explains how it's going to happen. So you would think if people are educated on this chapter, then they wouldn't fall for it. That's why it's such a key chapter. Now, it's interesting because in John 14, 29, Jesus says, this when he was telling his disciples about how he's going to die and rise again, He said, uh, these things I tell you before they happen, so that when it does take place, then you'll believe. He's telling his disciples, look, this is what's going to happen. So once you start seeing these events happen, then you'll believe. That's what I believe Revelation 13 is. You know, it's it's God telling you, look, this is what's going to happen in the world. And so maybe as you see it played out exactly as Scripture says it's going to happen, you would finally get a clue and go, okay, now I believe. Now, Now, some of... uh. Some of you think, well, why do we need to know this, though? Because aren't the believers going to be raptured out of the earth before this takes place? You know, the Bible talks about a rapture, a time when the believers, those who truly believe in Jesus Christ, will be taken up from the earth. And most people believe that all of that's going to take place before these events in Revelation 13 so that we won't even experience this. And, well, the problem with that is a couple things. One is, while I believe that's going to take place, There are many scholars who don't believe that's going to take place before this happens. Some believe in a post-tribulation rapture, meaning all these events will take place before the Christians are taken up from the earth. And so that the church will survive and will live through this period. And that's a possibility. But let's say I'm right and and that we are raptured before this takes place. Um, Even so, even if that did happen, not everyone here is going to be taken up. I mean, the truth is, is the Bible says only the true believers will be taken into heaven. And in every church you go to, there'll be plenty of people that just attend church but have never really made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. 
I can guarantee you there are people in this room, in the satellite room, that uh, maybe intellectually say they believe in this Jesus, but they've never really made a commitment to follow him. And, uh, and, th- and that's not good enough. I mean, the Bible makes it clear. He goes, even the demons in hell believe that God exists. That's not enough just to believe intellectually. Have you really made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And there are some of you, and we are so glad you're here. You're just checking things out. You're still wondering, well, I don't know about this Christianity thing. I want to find out more about the Bible. I want to see if I want to accept this stuff. And that's great. So understand, if the rapture took place today, it's not like everyone here and in the satellite room would be taken into heaven. There'd be many of us who would be left behind um, because we didn't truly place our faith in Jesus. And hopefully, as you see these events taking place, you go, okay, now I believe. Now, in no way am I suggesting or saying, you know, that's a good idea. Why don't you wait and see if this happens and then make a commitment to Jesus? I mean, that's crazy because, first of all, by this time, by the time Revelation 13 takes place, I really believe over half the world has died in those plagues that were preceding it, that we've been studying. Not only that, but James 4 says, look, your life is a vapor. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. No one's guaranteed that they're going to live through the rest of the day. And so for you to say, well, I'll wait until I see these events happen, not a good idea. If you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for your sins, today you need to come before God and just pray and say, God, look, I believe in you. I believe I'm a sinner and that your son died for me, and I want to follow him. I want to start living my life for him today. I am just saying this, that if right now you just say, I can't make that decision yet, and let's say you do live through this tribulation period, my prayer is that you'll remember the words that I spoke today and remember that this came straight out of Scripture, something that was written 2,000 years ago. And if you do happen to survive everything else and you're alive at that point, remember what I say today. And at least by then, get on your knees and, uh, and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. It's Revelation 13, chapter 12, we talked about Satan. And now he had this plan to really take as many with him as possible into hell. Revelation 13 is a continuation of what we were talking about in chapter 12. Remember when he was pursuing Israel and he couldn't get to her? Then it says that he turned and went after the rest of her offspring. So all the true believers now, Satan just wants to reach the whole world. This is how he does it in Revelation 13. He uses a couple of people. They're referred to as beasts because they're given power by the dragon. But uh, Revelation 13, verse 1, it says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Remember John's vision of the dragon and how he's pursuing the woman? And now he he says he's going to go after the rest of the world with a vengeance. And you see him standing on the shore of the sea. And it says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his thorns. And on each head a blasphemous name. So he sees the, the dragon is looking on the shore of the sea and this, this beast comes out. The beast that comes out of the sea, and this will represent that final world ruler, this beast that's coming out. And it says that he has ten horns and seven heads. Seven world empires. Seven successive world empires. Those empires are, uh, are Egypt, and then uh, Assyria, then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then the seventh head is the final kingdom yet to come that is, gonna, that, that is represented here. And you can read about it more in Revelation chapter 17, and we'll talk about it when we get there. 
But just understand, that's what those seven heads represent. So that last head represents this end-time kingdom. And it talks about ten horns. The ten horns represent this last kingdom, how somehow it's going to be made up of ten different kingdoms that come together and unite under this one head. Okay, so that's what this beast is representing. He's representing the ruler who will lead this ten nation or kingdom, whatever it is, confederacy that will really be the last world empire that we will experience. And then in verse 2, it says, The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like a bear and the mouth like a lion. Okay, those you read those uh, animals and go, well, what's that all about? If you read Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that those three animals were the animals that were describing the three kingdoms right before the Roman Empire, kingdom of uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and, uh, and Greece. They used those three animals. So what he's saying here is that this last empire that comes will have the strength of those three kingdoms combined. I mean, this is an empire that's going to be worldwide what every ruler dreamed of. Um, and so this is huge. And it says that in, in verse 2 that the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. We talked about that last week, how these kingdoms really get their power from Satan. And Satan really has his power because God allows him to have that power. But then in verse 3 it says this, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Okay, it talks about that, the, the beast that came out of the, the sea and how one of his heads, you know, and I believe this is the last head or the, the last ruler, receives a fatal wound on his head. And then he is somehow healed of that. Now people have said, well, that will give us a clue as to who this final ruler is going to be, that he will have some sort of, you know, injury. And some people have said, well, you know, maybe it's Gorbachev, because he has that mark on his head, you know, or, but it it's, it's really goes beyond anything like that, because what it describes here, it says that he, he, is, he is wounded, but then he is healed, and it is so miraculous that the whole world, it says in, in verse 3, the whole world is astonished and follows after him. Now, what would it take for the whole world to be astonished? I mean, we we probably all know of someone or know a story of someone that shouldn't have made it, but lived through a certain situation. Now, it doesn't make you go up to that person and say, I will follow you now. You know, right? You just go, wow, that was incredible. That's amazing. And uh, some of you that are maybe policemen or firemen have seen some situations where you just thought, that person's not going to make it, or doctors, and you, you just go, can't believe they made it. But this is something that is so miraculous that the world says, we will follow this person. Okay, so we're not talking about a, an, a, you know, just your typical head injury or something that a person lives through. This is huge. I mean, we're, we're talking something bizarre, like you know, someone's head being blown off, and then he grows another one. Yeah, I mean, really, and it sounds silly, but, but you guys, what else could it be other than something that is so unbelievable because the whole world is astonished? And I mean, isn't it true that we're all skeptics anyways? 
I mean, when you hear about a miracle, you go, okay, come on. And especially the world that doesn't believe in God, you go, okay, did that really happen? And so what would it take for the whole world to believe? This couldn't be a trick if the whole world is astonished. I mean, it literally has to be. His head's blown off. He's walking around with just a neck and another one grew out, you know? And then the whole world says, okay, this is supernatural, especially in a day and age where we haven't seen miracles. I mean, really true blue, just un unexplicable miracles. We don't live in that type of age. And so if something like that did happen, you can see the world going, okay, this guy has power. And what does he do? He has people worship the dragon. And people begin to worship him, but then he also tells them to worship the dragon, which I think is, is very interesting because let's look at the story for a little bit. Who do you know that died and rose again? Christ. And when people worship Christ, what did Christ tell them to do? Worship the Father and worship me. He who honors the Father honors the Son. And, uh, and not only that, but uh, as everyone is worshiping the Father and the Son, you know, they, they, statements throughout the Bible say, who is like our God? There's none like him. Now, what's going on here? You've got a beast who dies or apparently dies and rises again. And once people worship him, they say, hey, worship the one who sent me, the dragon. And they start worshiping the beast and the dragon. And people are saying things here in verse 4 where it says, who's like the beast? Who can make war with him? And remember what I said last week, how Satan wanted that position of God. And, uh, and, and here you see him striving after that by imitating the relationship between the father and the son here between the dragon and the beast. Then verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Okay, so once he has his authority, the beast then uses his words to utter proud words and blasphemies against God. He gets the whole world to curse God. Somehow this man is uh, given the ability to be a very persuasive speaker, which uh, rules out certain leaders of our day. But uh, he, he has a, he, he's just very eloquent. He just speaks really well. And yet he uses this speech. And, he, and understand, it says he's given this authority for 42 months. You guys know the 42 months represents the three and a half years that we've been talking about. 42 months, he's given that authority. That's why I say, obviously, this authority is ultimately given to him by God. Because if Satan gave him power, how long would Satan give him power for? Probably forever, you know, he'd want this guy ruling, but because God has ordained, look, three and a half years you've got. So now he's got this power to get people to blaspheme God and to question God. And couldn't you see that happening? I mean, the truth is, is how many people in the world really believe in God anymore anyways, right? I mean, does the majority of the world believe that there is a God that created them? And now let's just imagine suddenly this ruler comes along who has the power to somehow die and resurrect himself, um, receive a wound that everyone just says, okay, he's dead, and then he comes to life. Everyone's following him, and, and for him to say, look, what has your God done lately? You know, look what I've done. You guys saw me, I was dead, and look, I'm alive. Look at the power that I have, and you're telling me that there's someone more powerful than me? There is no God in heaven. Get that, get that out of your head. You know, I'm the only God you need. And you can see the world saying, yeah, God hasn't shown me anything like that. This person has. And now he's getting people to question God. 
And it says that, uh, verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That means uh, those are the believers. He's given the power to conquer the believers. We talked about how there's going to be a lot of martyrs in the end times. Well, it's because the world ruler commands that they be killed. Continues, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Okay, so understand, this is not like a little cult. Okay, this is not like one government or one country. It's saying this is a worldwide effect. Everyone sees what this beast has done, what this person has done, and they follow him. And the only people that don't worship him and follow him, it says, are the true believers, the ones whose names are written in the book of life, probably some of us whose names have been written in the book of life, who have truly given our lives to Jesus Christ. The Bible says we'll be strong enough and we won't follow the rest of the world in worshiping this dragon. Now, what makes it difficult to not give in or to ditch your faith is the fact that the persecution is going to be so huge, so worldwide. And verse, uh, verses 9 and 10 are, are very, very key to this. When, when he says, He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Okay, don't miss this verse. When it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Okay, that's a phrase that you'll see throughout the book of Revelation. We've talked about it. It means if you can really listen to this, if you can listen to this message and accept it, because not everyone is going to be able to accept this message. And what's the message? He says, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. Okay, you think, well, that seems kind of silly to say. Well, what does he mean by that? What he's saying is, look, God has ordained this. God has decreed these events in Revelation 13. And he has already decreed that there will be those who are true believers that will be in prison. God's already decreed that. And he says, so if you're one of those people... You're going to be in prison. There's no way out of it. He also says, if, if some of you are going to be uh, him who is going to be killed by the sword, he's going to be killed by the sword. If God says that's what's going to happen, that's going to happen. And he says, can you accept that? Do you have ears to hear that? Let I me mean, think about that. If you know that becoming a believer means that there's the possibility you could be imprisoned for your faith, would you still do it? If living for Christ means that you could be tortured physically, taken away from your family and tortured, would you still follow? Even to the point of death? Because let's face it, some people just go to church because that's what they've done all their lives. Or they're forced to or feel obligated to be here. Others of you, you would seriously die for your faith. And you've got people in other countries right now that are being tortured just because they believe. People who will die for their faith today. But let me ask you, if there was a possibility today, and let's say it was illegal to do what we're doing here, worshiping God, learning from the Bible, and you knew that coming here could mean that you would be arrested today, taken away from your family, 
would you still come to worship? Not only that, let's say if it meant torture and possibly death for you to assemble and worship God, would you still do it? See, in a lot of countries, that's that's how they separate the true believers from the, the phonies. As the persecution comes and you pretty much can see who's real. Because I tell you, in some of these countries, there's no way that people would congregate and worship God if they didn't really believe it. Because the cost is way too high. And the Bible says here, same thing Jesus said when he says, look, if anyone wants to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It means if you really want to follow me, that means you've you got to follow me even to death. Even if it meant being crucified. Because how serious are you about your faith? Think about it. Is this something you would die for? Because I know some of you would. It gets really bad.
You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. Of course, I would never want this to happen to you, but let's just imagine that your child is sleeping on the second floor and a criminal sneaks into your house and threatens you with a weapon to tell him where your child is. The criminal threatens and says, If you remain silent, I will kill you. However, if you tell him the truth, your child will be at risk of harm. The child might even be killed by the criminal. What would you do in this situation? Since lying is bad, would you tell the truth? Or would you lie to save your child? If you tell the truth, and the criminal hurts your child, would you be considered a sinner? The different perspectives about lying have always been the subject of debate. Some say that lying can never be justified or accepted, while others say that lying itself is not just about being morally right or wrong. Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. This verse includes lying as a sin, along with other sins such as murder, homosexuality, kidnapping, and more. The biggest reason that lying has many controversial issues is because lying is not clearly defined. If lying is defined as intentionally deceiving someone, then it would mean that a lie without any intention can be accepted. Also, if lying is defined as a statement that does not match with one's mind, then a statement that matches with one's sinful mind cannot be called a lie. Augustine's view on lying is very strict that a person has to tell the truth at all times, regardless of the consequences. Then what would be the sensible lie that is also not sinful? A lie is an intention to deceive someone. Some people limit the extent of lying by adding an intention to deceive someone who has a right to know the truth and who also wants to know the truth. So I'll ask the same question again. Is it right to tell the criminal the truth? Or is it right to tell a lie? I think you have this figured out, but yes, the criminal who broke into your house has no right to know where your child is. Surely not every theologian agrees with this idea. Most theists believe that a person can lie in order to save lives. People who believe in graded absolutism say that it is okay to lie in order to save someone's life 
since that saving lives has a greater moral value than being honest. On the other hand, people who believe in moral absolutism say that a person has to tell the truth at all times and leaves the outcomes to God because they believe that everything that happens is allowed by God and people must obey. Many people believe that do not lie is one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. However, it actually says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This verse refers to giving a false testimony and bringing harm to someone else. It entails committing perjury in a court. It's because perjury could lead the defendant to be sentenced to death. In Exodus 1, 15-21, there are two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah. They did not tell the truth to the Pharaoh in order to save the life of a Hebrew boy. In Samuel 19 and in 20, Jonathan did not tell the truth to his father, King Saul, in order to save the life of his friend David. A prostitute named Rahab in Joshua 2 did not tell the truth to the people that the king of Jericho sent in order to save the lives of the Israel spies. All of these people did not tell the truth and lied instead. Are they all sinners because of it? Sometimes telling the truth leads to an ethical conflict. When such an ethical dilemma happens, we need to think about the higher moral principle and the prior moral value. Not killing an innocent person has a higher moral principle and value than telling the truth to the king Pharaoh. Protecting an innocent friend like David has a higher moral principle and value than telling the truth to his father King Saul, who was trying to kill him. Many of us may have our own values based on the education we had on humanism. And we even measure and evaluate the Bible with those values we have. We agree with some parts in the Bible that fit with our values and disagree with some parts that do not fit in with our values. All good things belong to God. God's works are all good. Humanists would say that God is evil for commanding to destroy the Canaanites. However, people who truly know and believe in God would not think He is evil because they know that doing what God tells them to do is the same as doing good, for God is good. Abraham tried to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering because it was what God asked him to do. It was God's will. God sets the standard of goodness, the standard for everything. Rahab the prostitute also lied to her king in order to complete God's will and save the lives of the Israel spies. And by doing this, she and her family were saved as well. That is doing good. Completing God's will is choosing the higher moral principle and values. From the biblical point of view, without any doubt, God wants us to be honest. Christians should be honest with their words and their minds. Lying is the same as staying away from God. Therefore, the Bible says that such people will be outside the city of heaven in Revelations chapter 22, verse 15. Telling the truth is crucial. It's important to avoid the sin of lying. A lie itself is always wrong. However, in a situation where we have to keep the higher moral value, we can be free from keeping the lower moral value of lying. This allows us to complete 
the more important obligation. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. I thank you for listening, and God bless.
Jesus says to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. The church of little strength, who still kept the word of Jesus, that deny his name, he promises to them. Because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus promises to those who follow and obey God, and to the Christians who keep his word, that he will keep them from the hour of trial. What is my faith like today? Do I have the faith of living however I please, but memorizing the word so that I am ready at any time to answer questions? Or do I have the faith of living by the word and acting according to it in all circumstances? Jesus says in John chapter 14 verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I sincerely hope that everyone listening to this broadcast right now may live this next week listening and acting fervently by the word being assured of our faith towards Christ's love for us. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless.
my God, you 